We're nearing the end of our study of Christ uh, in the here and the now, presently enthroned at the right hand of God, sovereign over the church age in which we now live, fulfilling all the purposes of God in Christ Jesus. And that is the hope of every believer in the day in which we live today until he returns to see and to know this Christ for who he is and to know that he cannot fail, to know that he will win, he is victorious, and none can stay his hand. We look this morning at Revelation chapter 21. I'll begin reading in verse 9, and we will read to the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the, city of the, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again this morning out of our neediness. We praise you and thank you that you are the sovereign, almighty, all-knowing, glorious God. You are solitary in your glory. There are no weaknesses in you. 
There are no boundaries, no limitations upon you. There is none like you. Father, our minds can't even comprehend the fullness of it. Page after page of Scripture reveals more and more and more of your everlasting glory. And never once does it overstate the matter. Never once does it speak in hyperbolic terms and hyperbole. But Father, if anything, it understates it. If anything, it cannot capture the truth of the God that you are. And that certainly applies to us this morning as we look at this text. John is doing his best to describe the glory that he sees in heaven. But even this falls woefully short. And Father, we confess to you that even as we read, our minds are, and our hearts are idle factories. The easy thing will be to take this text and to make an idol out of heaven. And to make what we, the descriptions of what we see here be the infatuation of our heart and the desire of our heart be streets of gold and, and jewels on the walls and, and pearly gates. But yet you've told us from the beginning of Revelation and for that matter from the beginning of Genesis that all of history, all of life, all of eternity is about you. It's about your glory. It's about the beauty of your son Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit upon a soul giving us the desires and the affections for you. And so, Father, we pray that would be the case for us here this morning. That your spirit would come and help us to see how this text unfolds for us more and more of your glory and the beauty of Christ. Help us. As John struggles, so too I struggle to, one, understand the text, and two, to use words that even convey the meaning of the text but your spirit is able and you are willing to show us the glory of God on display here help us help us we pray in Jesus name amen so as we've made our way into Revelation 21 we're probably aware Revelation 21 gives us a picture of heaven a picture of what Augustine, the early church father, called the city of God. A picture of what John Bunyan in his classic Pilgrim's Progress called the celestial city. And in fact, in Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, this is how he ends the book. With this glorious picture of the celestial city. And let me, I'm going to read just a few sections from Bunyan's conclusion Bunyan writes, Now I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims that he had been talking about, Christian being the, the main pilgrim, they had passed over the enchanted ground and entered into the country whose air was very sweet and pleasant. In this country the sun shone night and day. It was beyond the valley of the shadow of death, also out of the reach of giant despair. Nor could they even see the doubting castle from this place. All things are new, right? All the old is gone. Can't even see it anymore. And here they were within the sight of the city to which they were going. And here they had no lack. For in this place they met with an abundance of what they had sought during all their pilgrimage. And now as they walked in this land, they rejoiced more than they had in any other part of the journey, that journey from the cross to the celestial city, 
All that they had been feasting on, Christ, now they had it in fullness. And now they're rejoicing more than they ever did on the journey. And as they came near the celestial city, they could see that it was built of pearls and precious stones and that the streets were paved with gold. The reflection of the sun upon the city, for the city was pure gold, was so extremely glorious that they could not behold it without covering their eyes. The city stood upon a mighty hill with its foundations higher than the clouds. And they went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they had safely crossed over the river and had such glorious companions to assist them. They, they spoke about the glory of the place with the shining ones who replied that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. And they were told, this is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. There you shall not see again such things as, that, as, as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth. You'll not see sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. And in this place, you enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see Him as He is. There also you shall serve Him continually with praise, shouting, and thanksgiving. Him whom you desire to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh, there your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. It was then that the city itself came into their view and they thought they heard all the bells in the city ringing to welcome them. But above all, they had warm and joyful thoughts about living there with such company and that forever and ever. Oh, by what tongue or pen can their glorious joy be expressed? And when they came up to the gate, they saw written over it in letters of gold, Blessed are they who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And then I heard in my dream, enter ye into the joy of your Lord. And as the gates were opened to let them in, I looked in myself and saw the city shining like the sun. The streets were paved with gold, and on them walked many men with crowns on their heads, palms in their hands, and golden harps to sing praises. There were also among them winged angels, and they shouted to one another continually, proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that, they shut up the gate. Having seen what was inside the gates, I wished I could have joined them. Where does Bunyan and Augustine, had I chosen to read some of the selections from his work, City of God, where do these individuals get the inspiration for such a glorious vision of heaven? Well, it's not their imagination. I hope as I read that, you thought, I see Revelation 21. That's the passage we just read. But Bunyan was one of those gifted men of God who has, a, has just a, a wonderful gift for being with words and being able to paint word picture for us that whet our appetite. And my point is that if Bunyan is able to whet our appetite for heaven, then how much more so 
should the Spirit-inspired vision of Revelation 21 more so make us long after heaven? Make us long, even as, as Bunyan's selection closed out. Oh, as the gates closed. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could be in there with that. How much more as we read Revelation 21 should our hearts say, oh, I want that. Which I believe is the point of Revelation 21. What distinguishes a Bunyan-like or an Augustine-like love and appreciation for Revelation 21 from just an ordinary reading of the text. Because let's be honest, how many of us have read Revelation 21 and we are enchanted by magnificent streets of gold, magnificent jewels on display. My goodness, no more tears, no more suffering. I'm all in for that. But yet there's no real churning in our heart to pursue after what is that all about? You see, the difference is one must come to Revelation 21 in the spirit to understand and appreciate the vision. The fact is the carnal mind, the mind that is not enchanted by God and Christ and seeking his honor and his glory, the carnal mind will have no interest, no real interest in what Revelation 21 is all about. They will certainly be interested in streets of gold. They will all be interested in jewels everywhere. They will all be interested in no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more cancer, being reunited with friends and family, absolutely be enchanted by that. But what I want you to see this morning, that's not what this Revelation 21 is about. The carnal mind will have no interest in what this is really about. Their interest will be on a superficial level. They will be like in John's gospel, as Jesus goes around doing his ministry and his public miracles, there were crowds who were following him. This is him, this is him. And yet Jesus himself says, most of those people, their interest in me is only superficial. Their interest in me is that they're hoping I can do a miracle for them. Or that the, the physical thing they see, they're not spiritually seeking after me. And that's proven to be true because those very ones who are following him in the early days of his ministry, the very ones who when he's on the cross or going to the cross are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Their, their interest in Jesus was solely superficial. How Jesus can serve them. And when he didn't, on the terms that they thought they betrayed him. If we come to Revelation 21 and our sole interest is me, and me escaping this world and entering into a world where I'm free from uh, pain and suffering and tears and trials and torment, and I get to walk on streets of gold and pearly gates, if that's our sole interest, then you're probably about to lose your interest because there's a reason those things are the way they are. So my prayer for you, and even now as we continue in this, it's an appropriate thing for you to pray, God, send your spirit right now to help me to see what Revelation 21 is all about. Help me to see what only you can help me to see, God. Help me to guard against the far too common temptation to be entranced by heaven without God, 
enchanted by what heaven is without reference to God and Christ. Spirit, help me to be so entranced by Jesus Christ that I see and understand that what makes heaven so glorious is Christ. In fact, what makes the gold and the jewels so fantastic is not the inherent value of those. It is because they reflect the value and the glory of Christ. If we value gold and jewels just for gold and jewels' sake, (laughs) they are nothing in comparison to Christ. For that matter, understand this is a vision. From the outset, we're told here in chapter 21, verse 9, or in verse 10, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. There's a picture of a city coming down. Pray to ask God to help you to understand this really is not about a city at all. This city is symbolic of a relationship, a people in relationship with God. A people who've been gathered together by grace into one place, a new heaven, a new earth with the glory of God dwelling in their midst. And they are completely enchanted and focused upon the glory of that God. Pray to ask God to help you to see what I need him to help me to see. What we far too often fail to connect, that this vision of heaven is the final product of Christ's work of atonement. How often do we come to Revelation 21 and maybe in our minds we think, yeah, yeah, you need Christ to get here, but then you focus upon heaven without reference to Christ. No, this is what it is because of Christ. There is a hope for this because of who Christ is and what he has done in his birth, the perfect God-man who's come, who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we deserve to die, who took the wrath of God upon himself that our sins might be forgiven, that the veil may be torn, that maybe we may be reconciled to God, have a living relationship with him, that we would desire him and love him and want him and be conformed to him so that in eternity we would want anything to do with him. This vision of heaven is the fulfillment and the consummation of Christ's work of atonement on earth and his ongoing ministry of intercession right here today at the Father's right hand. The God who saved us through his work upon the cross is keeping us and preserving us until the Revelation 21 day by interceding for us. And the whole hope of Revelation 21, a vision of our place there, is a clinging to Christ and who he is, and what he's done for us. Revelation 21, instead of just being a picture of heaven, is a very real display, an expression, if you will, of the spiritual realities of Christ's person and work. We're trying to be very intentional this morning to not talk about heaven apart from Christ. Because Christ is what makes heaven heaven. And if Christ is not in heaven, as Samuel Rutherford said, I'll choose to go to hell where Christ is. Because he's more valuable to me than anything else. And the question for our souls this morning, do we treasure Christ that way? That I would even forsake streets of gold and jewels 
to be where Christ is. This picture we have here in Revelation 21 is an expression of the fullness of the spiritual realities that are true of the church because of who Christ is and what he's done. It's a vision of the final product of God's plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. And furthermore, this is not just something for the future. This is not just something that we hold on to, that it belongs, man, one day we'll get there. The reality depicted here is yours and mine now if you're a true believer. The, the, the final consummation of the work of Jesus Christ that we will enjoy then, we have a foretaste of now. And that's the reason. Remember, this, these, this is being written to the seven churches who are what? They're drifting away from Christ. They're compromising Christ. And these visions are given, don't turn away from this one upon the throne. And now this vision comes in. Look at the fullness of what heaven is. You're on the road there, just like in Bunyan. You're, you're on the path there, and there's a lot of difficulties there. But look at what it is. Look at what Christ accomplishes for you through his work upon the cross. Look what the Spirit accomplishes through the work of the new birth upon your soul, giving you a heart that loves the crucified Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the, the, inter, the Jesus who's interceding on your behalf at the Father's right hand. Look at what is yours. Don't drift from him now. You see, this is a present realities now that those seven churches and covenant life churches need, needs. This vision is given not that we would celebrate someday in the future, but that today, where we are prone to drift away from Christ, to compromise Christ, that today, in light of this vision and how all of this reflects Christ's glory, our love and devotion to Christ, we would press in ever more deeply into it. We would be more devoted in our faithfulness to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus of knowing this Jesus, of considering Jesus, of desiring Jesus, of loving Jesus and hoping in Jesus and worshiping Jesus and being conformed to Jesus because of all that he is and all that he has in store for those who finish well. Not finish religious, not finish moral, finish loving Jesus, clinging to his person and his work. Church, I want us to think a little bit differently about Revelation 21 because there's a lot in this passage that gives us hope and encouragement and grace today. This picture of what he has in store for us is, in, is intended to drive us to Christ now. From start to finish, Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27, the theme of this vision of heaven I think I could say is glory. The theme of everything we read is glory. I think that's a one word that, that captures the picture that John has in mind as this vision of heaven unfolds before him. This is about glory. A glorious picture of beauty and wonder and majesty. It's glory on display, but... Don't miss how John qualifies the glory that is seen in this vision. Despite how we often think, heaven is not inherently glorious. Let me say that again. Heaven itself 
is not inherently glorious itself. The location, if, we, if I can use that term. Heaven itself is not beautiful. Heaven itself is not majestic. Let's be perfectly honest. There's nothing in and of itself in heaven that prompts our desire. Now, I'm going to qualify that in just a minute the way John is doing it. John is clear. What makes heaven heaven is what do we read there in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Here's what makes it. Verse 11, having the glory of God. This is what makes heaven beautiful. This is what makes heaven glorious. This is what makes heaven the desire of the redeemed. It is a reflection of the glory of God. And I'm convicted that it is pure wickedness to even think, try to think about heaven and about the glory of heaven apart from the glory of God. That's idolatry. We're, we're assigning to something else the glory that belongs to God himself. If God's not there, then the glory of God can't be there. And that thing is not glorious inherently. What makes heaven glorious is God himself, his glory displayed, his beauty present, revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Glory, for that matter, if that is an accurate term for the theme of heaven, glory belongs to God alone. Glory is God's defining attribute. It is the culmination of all his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath, his goodness, his mercy, his love. All those attributes of God. You collectively, eternal attributes, bring them together. And what do you do? It's just glory. The Hebrew word glory is the word kabod. It means heaviness. It's a weightiness. And that's what God is. The fullness of who he is is heavy. He's weighty. You know, things that we value today, they tend to be weighty, don't they? We put them on a scale, right? You measure a, a diamond. You weigh it. And you assign its value based upon its weight, correct? That's the idea between God's glory. His weight, the fullness of who he is, cannot be measured. There's no way for us to put that into terms. He is glorious. And oh, by the way, he says, my glory, I will not share with another. Not even heaven. I'm not even going to let, I'm, nothing, there, I am solitary in my glory. Nothing can compare to me. It is a sin to, to look at something else and to call it glorious and in your mind have it glorious independent of God. God has the only glory because he is of infinite value and worth. And that should shape, God's glory should shape everything we are and everything we do. And we'll gather for worship this morning. Our worship should be reverent. It should reflect the God who is, a beauty, an earnestness for him. He deserves that. Our prayers, we talked about this morning, prayers being shaped by the, the honor of God, the glory of God. Because he is glorious, he is weighty, the most weighty of all things. You are first and foremost. In all of our prayers, glorify yourself because you won't share your glory with me and my, my wants and my desires. 
wrapped around me. And likewise, when we think about heaven, to whatever glory we see on display in heaven, our ultimate interest must immediately turn. Holy cow. The beauty I see there could only come from one, from God himself. Revelation 21 is a picture of God. Not streets of gold, not jewels. Those things find their beauty as a reflection of the only glorious one who has taken up residence there. From start to finish, Revelation 21 is not fundamentally about heaven. It is about the beauty of God, the glory of God. And we can look at it in a couple different parts. The passage tells us in verse 9, the angel says, come, I will show you, saying to John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So there, we can look at the glory of heaven's bride. That's the church. But being very, very careful to make sure we understand that's not because the church, the redeemed church, is inherently beautiful or glorious. The glory of the bride on display here is a mere reflection of the glory of God and his influence and his sovereignty and his work over his bride. And then certainly we can think about the glory of heaven's king. So I want us to think about this morning the glory of God, the glory of Christ on display in heaven and in his bride. Look at verse 10. We're just going to kind of walk through some of these descriptions. Verse 10. John writes, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God as its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Notice the word like there. We're going to see this all throughout Revelation 21. And I'm convicted that for most of us, myself included, we've read this so many times and we failed to see the word like there. John is not necessarily saying that heaven is these jewels and these streets of gold. This will be a great test of really what you're going to value most in heaven. He says it's like it, meaning I'm trying to find words. I'm trying to find descriptions to help put it, to describe what I'm seeing here. I'll put it out there. I'm not even fully convinced there's going to be streets of gold there. There might be. I'm not going to die on that hill. And I, don't, I hope you don't think me heretical. I'm just simply saying if there are or if there aren't, I don't care. What's value is God. He's there. And that's what we value. That's, and he's simply saying all these other things are a reflection. God's presence is producing an effect and a re reflection on things around like jewels, like gold. I have no idea what it was literally. But the point here is the thing that strikes John is not jewels or not gold. What strikes him is the radiant light of the glory of God, which fills the entirety of heaven. In Revelation chapter 4, John describes a vision that he saw of God, and he said, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. It's the exact same description we see here. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
And now John is simply saying that that was what I saw on the throne. Now fast forward Revelation 21, it's the fullness of heaven. He says the whole, the whole of heaven is filled with that glory that I saw on the throne. Same description. His point here is when in the new heaven and the new earth, it's God who dwells in the midst of it. And it's God who is everything. It's his glory that's on display. Verse 10, he's struck by the radiance of the glory of God on display. And anything else that he sees shining is merely a reflection of that glory bouncing off other things. Verses 12 and 13, he goes on to describe this, uh, the symbolism of the city, having a, a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So what's, what's the picture here? Again, this is symbolism. This is not a literal thing here. What's, what was the purpose of a wall in the Old Testament? Again, all the allusions that John uses, they, they're taken from the Old Testament. What was the purpose of a wall in the Old Testament? For protection. For protection. To keep the people secure. To keep the people inside safe. To keep the people outside out. And here in heaven are these great high walls which even angels are guarding them. Now there are 12 gates into it. Three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. It indicates a way that God has made for people from every tribe, nation, north, south, east, and west, to have entrance into this place. But let's be very clear. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There may be three gates, but all three of those gates, again, symbolically, that's, the, the gate is Jesus. The gate is Jesus. That in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all races, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a way into this, the presence of the glory of God eternally without discrimination, without social distinction. So you've got these 12 gates. Why do these 12 gates have the 12 tribes listed on them? Well, let's think about what we've talked about with our kids. Garden of Eden, things go wrong. Rebel, rebel against God, all of humanity is spiraled into the curses. And then in the full, God makes a promise there in the garden that he's going to send a seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And then we kind of have to wait. When's he coming? Who is he? And then God calls in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land, to leave his family, forsake his home, go to a land that even... Abraham doesn't know where he's going. And Abraham, by faith, trusts God, goes, and God makes the promise that through him he's going to make a mighty nation. That through him all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And we understand, right, that this is the family that God has chosen to say, the seed of the woman is going to come. The Messiah is going to come through this family, through Abraham and He's going to have children, Isaac. That promise will be passed from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac's going to have children, one of whom is Jacob. And then Jacob's going to have 
How many sons? We talked about this morning. Twelve. Twelve sons. And those become the twelve tribes of Israel, don't they? And the promise is passed down into those tribes. The, the, those tribes make up the, the nation of Israel, if you will. It's the, the embryo of it. And the promise is passed down. God has promised. You must believe. Paul writes in Romans that Abraham was saved, justified by faith. He heard the promise of God and he believed it. And he was converted by grace through faith. And that gospel line was passed down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into these 12 tribes. Now, they were not perfect. We know that. But this is the line that that, the justification by faith in the Old Testament is being passed through. Entrance into this heaven comes by way of the message of those 12 tribes. What Paul says, justification by faith. Among all the nations in the world, this nation is the people of God. By grace, not because they're better, not because they're stronger. This is just the, the family God has chosen. And they demonstrate the fruit of God choosing them through their faith, their belief in the promises of God. And that's what gives them place in God's kingdom. And that, we might say, is the foundation of your entry into heaven. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who will come and make things right. Do you see that? Heaven is built upon the foundation of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, keep reading. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. <gasps> We've seen this before. You have the 12 tribes and you have the 12 apostles. That's not by accident. Those are connected. The 12 apostles in the fullness of time as the, the, the Messiah has come through the, the line of Jacob uh, has come into existence. Now that lamb takes 12 individuals to go and, and to spread Christ. And to take Christ and to communicate Christ to those around. And the message of the apostles that we see in the New Testament really is the foundation of the church. We're built upon the foundation of God's of salvation by grace through faith, justification by faith, and the message of Christ in the fullness of time as Christ came. He's the Messiah. He's the one. The apostles, we preach Christ. And that is the, what the church is built upon today. Upon Christ Jesus, who he is. And what he did in fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Do you see that connection? It's what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul talks about the church. Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, in Christ, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So do you see how the, 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 um, the 12 tribes lay the foundation 
of entry into God's kingdom, justification by faith. And the 12 apostles, as they continued the work of Christ, they identified Christ. He is the Messiah. And everywhere they went, they preached Christ. Look to Jesus. He is all. He is the fullness of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Justification before this God comes by faith in this one, Jesus. And oh, by the way, faith in this one is not just a one-time prayer. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of clinging to Jesus, a life of, of looking to Jesus, a life of loving Jesus. That's what faith is, that he is all. I've forsaken all else, and, and Christ is all. And, and, and this vision that John sees of heaven in which the glory of God is there, the only way entry into this walled city, symbolically speaking, is Christ. Is Christ. In verse 15 we read, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Verse 16. The city lies four square. Here's the measurements. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with the, his rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. Now we've talked about this two weeks ago. What's the shape there? Height, width, length. All the same. Picture it in your mind. What, what is that shape? A cube. It's a perfect cube. And it's a, it don't, don't miss it, it is a gigantic cube of what we see here. Some 1,400 miles, if we put it into four, wide, long. And then here's something unique. When we measure things today, we usually go width and length. This one measures height. And it's perfectly high as it is wide and long. So 1,400 this way, that way. I was kind of... Thinking about, it. I've got some idea of 1,400 miles in a car this way and that way. How high is 1,400 miles high? My understanding is outer space is about six miles. And here we're talking 1,400 miles high. Again, symbolic, symbolic. What is the point of that? Speaks to the bigness of God. This is his glory. This is where his glory dwells. This is not some small little spark, not small little flame. This is the glory of God on display, which certainly cannot be bound. But if we were to try to, I mean, fathom these dimensions, this is the bigness of God's glory. Who dwells in unapproachable life. The cube is significant because there is one other cube we've seen in the Bible. We talked about this two weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point. There was one other perfect cube who can tell me? The Holy of Holies. And what was that? That was the place where one time a year the high priest would come. And he would be dressed in the high priestly robe with the 12 jewels of the 12 tribes upon him. He could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year to make sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins because that was the dwelling place of God. And so major was that they tied a rope around his leg just in case he comes into the presence of Almighty God and falls down dead as he should if by God's grace God, uh, you know, God doesn't destroy this one. He can walk out. 
But if he comes face to face with glory and falls down dead, which would be the appropriate thing, they drag him out by the rope. What's the picture here? Whereas the glory of God was once confined to the most holy place in Israel's tabernacle, which was approached once a year. In heaven, God's glory fills it all. You don't have to, well, it's Sunday in heaven. Let me go to the place where God's glory dwells. You dwell in the presence of the glory of God. You don't have to go somewhere to see it. You dwell eternally before the face of the one who dwells in unapproachable light. You dwell in the presence of the one who just a little bit before this, when that one comes in wrath, they're trying to find places to hide, to bury themselves alive so as they don't have to come face to face before this glory. And yet now, God's people dwell with him forever. In verse 17, we continue to read, John also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which also is an angel's measurement. There's a lot of allusion there to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 40. Time's not going to allow us to go into all the detail. It's just, it's fulfilling God's promises. What God has been saying about heaven all along and what heaven's really about, this is a fulfillment of it. Verse 18, we read, the, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Pause there for just a minute. The city was pure gold. You got that picture in your mind? Pure gold. What are you seeing? I'm guessing gold, that color. Okay? What about the next part? Like clear glass. Ah, that's a problem. Uh, gold I see is not clear. The gold I've, I've seen, gold bars, well, I mean, it's gold, it's vibrant, it's beautiful, clear like glass. One commentator writes about this, the gold that John's hears and that we are familiar with is lovely and can be highly reflective, but it no way resembles uh, the transparency of glass. This vision stretches and even breaks the paradigm of our experience in order to convey to us the precious value and purity that distinguishes the bride church's beauty in the eyes of her husband. Again, it's a good time for me to re-inject into this. These are descriptions of a city. This is not about a city. All these images are about our, the bride, the church's relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. The gates of entry into is justification by faith. Through Christ Jesus, the, 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 the message of the apostles. That Christ Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Salvation comes through faith in him. The, the, whole, the, the cube of it is not about how marvelous, heaven's a cube. No, it's about, no, this is the place we come now to dwell in the presence of Almighty God. We have this relationship with him. That we dwell with him day after day after day in the presence of Almighty glory. And the picture here, pure gold like clear glass, speaks to just the blessedness, the, the purity of God, the glory of God, and His work of grace upon the church to make us pure. That's what Paul writes about in Ephesians. 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now Christ washes and cleanses the church. Makes us pure, right? That's what we see here. Christ is doing it. Christ has done it. Verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald. You can read them all there. What's the point? Why why, why take the time to, to name all those? It's likely those stones were the same ones, the 12 stones that the high priest wore on his high priestly garb when he went into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for sins. Each tribe had a specific stone that was symbolic. It was reflective of as this sacrifice is being made, it's on behalf of these tribes. So what's the point here? Under the old covenant, one man, the high priest, entered that Holy of Holies one time of year as a representative for all of Israel. But under the new covenant, by grace, through Jesus Christ, through justification by faith in Him, in His person, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, His, interse- his ascension, His intercessory work, and the new covenant now, all have access to the throne of grace. All of us who are true believers, will dwell forever in the most holy place with Him, where His glory fills every inch of it. Verse 21, the 12 gates were were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I'll only interject this. You think it's an accident? that one of Jesus' own parables depicts him as a what of great price? A pearl. A pearl so valuable, you would sell everything that you may attain that pearl. Now, what is that pearl? It's Jesus. It's not heaven. It's Jesus. And, And the picture of heaven here is not about, again, it's not about heaven's walls. It's not about heaven's gates. It's not about a a pearly gate. That pearl is Jesus. Heaven is Jesus. The glory of God being, dwelling with Him. And the picture here of of, of the the, the single pearl and and all of the reflection and the radiance of glory upon streets of gold is because Christ is there who is the fullness of God, who is the face of God Himself. Again, I'll just say it. I, I, I hope I'm wrong just for the sake of you know, not irritating people, because I've learned people get irritated by some of these sermons in Revelation. I'm not so sure they're streets of gold. I just, I don't, I think these are symbolic. I think if we're hoping in streets of gold and pearls and jewels, we're missing the point. Let me ask you this. When you hear me say that, does it diminish in your heart the value of heaven? Now, only you can answer that. Does it diminish the value of heaven to hear me say, and maybe I'm wrong on it, but I'm not convinced that there's streets of gold and a pearly gate and all these jewels, literally. I believe these are reflective of the glory of God who is of much more value than these things. But does it diminish the value of heaven in your heart to hear that? I think that's an important test. To find out really where, what you value. Verse 22. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And again, it's just the same thing we're seeing. The new heavens, the new earth, God's glory will fill it all. What was the temple? What was the reason you went to the temple? To meet with God. Well, if God's glory fills every, every, the fullness of God's glory fills heaven and earth, why do you need a temple? He's everywhere. Under the old covenant, the temple was, it housed God, if you will. That was a place where God said, I will make my presence dwell there. And you would go there to worship and to fellowship with him. But in the new heaven and the new earth, through Jesus Christ, God's glory is spread. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is the lamb. My P there. Listen, I, I don't, it, it says that there will be, uh, it doesn't say there will be no sun or moon. It says it won't be needed. I don't know if it will be there or not. And frankly, I don't care. Because there's only one thing a true believer wants to be there. And that's Christ. And because of the radiance of the glory of Christ, there's no need for light. He is the lamp. He is sufficient. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will never be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And isn't that the whole purpose of God's eternal plan of redemption? When we go back and, and you study, looking unto Jesus in eternity past, the covenant between the Father and the Son. Isn't that what the whole thing has been about? God glorifying himself and God honoring the Son by redeeming an undeserving, unworthy people by grace and presenting them to the Son who has purchased them by his work upon the cross, by his shed blood who's been one to him through the work of the Holy Spirit, and now that people, devoted and worshiping their king without distraction, without any other idols forever and ever and ever. Isn't, isn't that, it goes back to what we talked about this morning in our prayer. It's about the honor and the glory of God. And the picture here in verse 24 is that's exactly what the church will do eternally. To honor God, to worship Christ, to glorify Him forever and ever. In verse 27, here's again in all these pictures a warning. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, we've, we've bumped upon that book of life. It was written before the foundation of the world. And the om omniscience of God the eternal plans and purposes of God. It's a fixed book. It's not being added to. It's not like sometimes it's depicted in some of these movies when someone prays to receive Christ. Now their name's being written in it. Scripture portrays a fixed God knows his children. Christ knows his sheep. The very fact that Heaven is depicted here as a perfect cube, which again, symbolic, 
There's 12 gates into it, which means, hey, it's open to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But the fact that there is symbolically a roof on it means there's a defined number of people. It's not, a, it's not an open stadium that get as many people in as you can. The fact that it's depicted here as a cube means there is a defined number that will fit in there. Do we know what that is? No. Does that detract us from inviting people to Christ? Nope. Because those gates are saying there, it's open. But God shares his glory by grace to a people that he, by grace, has chosen. As we conclude looking at this, my purpose this morning, and it's probably not even been done well, is to help us rethink heaven. Because if you're like me, the temptation is to think of heaven independent of God. I know Jamie and our family has just this week gone through the loss of a family member. And we've been staggered by some of the comments that have been made by well-intending people, even professing believers, about this person's eternal state. And about this person's, what's going on in heaven with this person right now? That in probably 99% of it has nothing to do with love for Jesus or the glory of God. And church, that's a problem. That's wickedness. That's evil. You might say, oh, that's an overstatement. Come on, people are well-intended. God's glory, he will not share with another. He's jealous for his glory. And it is pure wickedness to talk about joy and glory and beauty and happiness, even in heaven, without reference to the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. This image here in Revelation 21 it's not about a place. It's about a relationship between God and a people he has by grace saved through Jesus Christ. I commend to you it's symbolic. I don't mean that it's not true. Everything in it is true and real. And it will come to pass. But the symbols drive us to a greater truth about who God is, about who Christ is, about what Christ has done, about justification by faith, about Christ alone. What John saw, this holy city coming down out of heaven from God, it was not so that we become better familiar, or better acquainted with what the place of heaven is like, but that we would understand the people who will dwell there forever. And it's those who are enchanted by that glory, who love that glory, who have seen in light of that glory their own fallenness and know they don't match up to it and the wages of sin is death. And yet God sent his son into the world to pay the penalty for that cosmic treason of robbing God of his glory so that through faith in him a soul can be justified just as happened to Abraham and Abraham's family and the message of the apostles in the New Testament Christ crucified, Christ is all. Look to Jesus, don't look at anything else. 
Look to him out of a heart that loves him. Cling to him. Because it's those who will look at heaven and see gold streets, pearly gates, don't know, don't care. Those are a reflection of the glory of God. And that's what my heart desires. And why Paul would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want this God. I want this communion and fellowship with him. We talk about wanting fellowship. Fellowship with God. I want that more than anything else. And all this revolves around Jesus Christ. He's the lamp. He's the light. All throughout the passage, verse 11 tells us, it's the glory of the Lord that makes the city shine, that makes the people shine. It's exactly what happened to Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai. And he was face to face with the unveiled glory of of God. What happened when he came off the mountain? What was his face like? It was shining like the sun. Is that because Moses was super spiritual? No, it's because he... He was in the presence of Almighty God, and everything radiates that glory. That's exactly what we see here. Everything in heaven, the rainbow, the prism, the jewels, the golden streets, the pearls, don't focus upon those. Understand, the luster of those things is that they radiate the glory of God. If those things are beautiful, how much more so the one that they're just simply reflecting? Heaven's about God. The size of the cube is about the bigness of God, the wonder of God, the majesty of God, the grandeur of God. And God reveals himself in that place in the person of Jesus Christ. Bunyan closes his book, Pilgrim's Progress, with this vision of heaven And when he watches Pilgrim go into the gates and then the gates close, the statement is, I wish I could have joined them. Now, how much did Bunyan know about that's a reflection of the glory of God? I'm inclined to think much. And I have no doubt, many of us, most of us, probably all of us, I want to be there too. It can be. But it's solely through your love for Jesus, your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and your loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you love him in that way? Is he everything to you? Would you be willing to, you know what, I'll forsake heaven if Christ isn't there. If Christ is in hell, I'll go there. Because I want him. And I'll I'll take everything that goes with that. I just want to be near Christ. Do you love him that much? Don't answer that quickly. I'll close with this. Spurgeon. Speaking about heaven. Whatever may be the splendors of that day. And truly here as a temptation to let our imagination revel. However bright may be the walls, however splendid the gates which are of one pearl, whatever may be the magnificence set forth by the streets of gold, this we know, the sum and substance, the light and glory of the whole will be the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Rejoice, rejoice, beloved, that He comes actually and really comes. And this shall be the joy of that age, that He is there among His saints, that He dwelleth with you and you with Him. Contemplate this thought. And though I speak of it so feebly, yet it may ravish your heart with transport that Christ is the Son, S-U-N, of that long-expected blessed day, that Christ is the highest, Christ is the delight, Christ is the magnificence, Christ is the triumph, Christ is the center, Christ is the soul of heaven. Oh, to be present, to see Him, to be with Him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If your aspiration for heaven is anything other than that, you won't get there. How's your love for Jesus this morning?